0: In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. In this episode, we're lucky to be joined by Dan Greider. Dan is a pilot, skydiver, investigative journalist, and YouTuber. Dan is the creator and host of Probable Cause, Dan Grider, a YouTube channel that focuses on aviation. Dan is going to duplicate Cooper's jump on the 50th anniversary of the crime. But more important than that, he believes he's solved the case. Ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Dan Grider. All right, Dan, let's get started. When did you first hear about D.B. Cooper?
1: Well, when I was 10 years old, Darren, uh I was a uh, young kid and uh, sat on the front steps of my hometown and saw the newspaper that had this fabulous headline that that said something to the effect of man jumps from airplane and demands ransom cannot be found. So I was 10 years old when it happened.
0: And were you interested in it from the word go or, you know, being 10 years old, just kind of, Oh, that was interesting.
1: No, I was the little kid that wasn't interested in baseball. I was all into airplanes and parachuting. So My early years, by the time I was seven years old, I had already built a parachute, although it wasn't much of a parachute, and I jumped out of a tree. I had a logbook. I would log my jumps as I jumped out of a tree that was only probably three feet tall, but I had a little backpack and a green army blanket and jumper open. I would call those parachute jumps, so I was totally into it.
0: And as a child, you logged your own jumps in your own homemade logbook.
1: It was a piece of scrap paper, but yes, a piece of notebook paper. I I had my own jump logbook where I was writing down how many jumps I had.
0: So it's, it's safe to say aviation has been your thing for a long time.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then uh, uh, both flying and skydiving oh. kind of started at the exact same time. So I've uh, been a, a pilot and a skydiver myself for all these years. So they've been totally intertwined.
0: Really? A pilot and skydiver the whole time? What, what year was your first real jump that wasn't with the homemade parachute out of a tree?
1: Uh, it was in the uh, spring of 1980.
0: Spring of 1980. Yeah. And you're also a pilot. Yeah. Have you ever flown a 727? I've jumped
1: out of a 727. I've never flown one. That's uh, that's the one airliner that I that I missed in my sequence, but I've flown all the other ones, all the big Boeings and Big Douglas. I've flown all of them. But the 727, uh, I never flew the 727.
0: But you've jumped from a 727. Yes. When was that?
1: We used to have this thing called World Free Fall Convention in Quincy, Illinois, where all the skydivers get together and they would bring in unique airplanes every year. And there was two years, I believe, back to back where they had the 727 there and you could jump the 727 for 20 bucks. You could ride it to 12 grand and jump out.
0: That seems pretty affordable. How many dudes did it in a suit?
1: I don't ever remember seeing anybody doing it in a in a suit. There was some copycat makeup type things, but I don't remember. Of course, I wasn't paying much attention. You know, in those days, it wasn't that that big of a deal. But I, I was just there for the jump. And the 720, I jumped the C-130 and the 727. I got a couple of balloon jumps and a helicopter jump. So you could jump just about anything that you wanted to. And the 727 was actually fairly easy to jump. It was it was not a big deal.
0: The 727, you jumped. Did they have the aft stairs removed? No, it
1: had the aft stairs.
0: So you walked down the aft stairs and jumped?
1: No, they had... Uh, they had built it where it was like a slide. They put this plastic. You couldn't trip on the stairs, but you could run down the stairs and they were fixed and they wouldn't snap around, but there was no stairs. It was just, it was like a, an on-ramp that was like this PVC plastic and you just run down the ramp.
0: Okay. So take us through the whole thing. I want to hear from the start. I It was my turn to run down the ramp. Well, it's not necessarily your turn.
1: Uh, We had, you know, for each one of those big ships like the C-130, you're packing, uh, now this is by memory, uh, I think on the 727, I think we packed 80 jumpers in it. And they made two passes, so both times I was in the second pass, and they put out like 40 at a time. That may not, that number may not be, it's been so long, I've jumped so many airplanes, but it it was a massive number of people, and both of them always did two passes, so you're putting out 40 or 50 jumpers at a time and you're in a you're in a line like a Congo line. And as, as you get over the target, this green light comes on. This the door is already open and the stairs already down, and you've already looked at it to give everybody a chance to look at it, see what it's going to be like. And you just you run down the steps. Literally, you take you're going downhill, you take two steps and spread out your arms, and you're gone.
0: What was the was there a, an impact of wind? I mean, how fast was the plane going?
1: My guess is it was pretty similar to the DB Cooper thing. Gear down, flaps 15, but probably 160, 170 knots, something like that. And off of any of those airplanes that you jump that are big, you get this big burble, kind of like this wave that kind of, you can almost ride the wave for a few seconds. And it does kind of knock you around a little bit, but it's not bad. I mean, you know not to extend your appendages immediately. You get clear of that and you know your body's supposed to be falling at 120 miles an hour. So if you leave the airplane at 160, you you could hurt your arm if you had your arm stuck way out and the blast if it twisted your arm or dislocated a shoulder, That's that's possible. So I always kept everything tucked in real tight until I got totally clear of the airplane and then started sticking my arms out real slowly again.
0: Do you think if a person had, let's say, five previous jumps, they could jump out of a 727. Absolutely. Do you think if I had classroom training, I could jump out of a 727?
1: I think if you can find the switch and lower the stair, it's, it's easier than jumping out of a Cessna. I mean, you got the stair. You you walk down the stair and jump. I probably one of the simpler jump airplanes out there.
0: So you don't think jumping from a 727 is particularly difficult?
1: Absolutely not.
0: What about Cooper's conditions?
1: Well I was going to ask you about that. What uh, and and also Darren you are a respected industry expert. I mean I thought I knew a lot about this. I went back and listened to some of your podcasts. Buddy, you got it going on. You you have you have interviewed more people than me by a long shot. Now, now the people that I have interviewed and the places that I have been are directly related to the case. So I have not gone and interviewed every single bookseller and suspect and all that kind of thing that self-proclaimed suspect i haven't visited any of those people uh none except for one i went and visited uh marla a couple of weeks ago i've been friends with her for years and i went and uh visited her in oklahoma city but uh uh she's really the only uh only one that uh, you know she's got a book out and claims her uncle was db cooper which is fine but i uh you you've you've got it going on i mean look at the number of podcasts you have and the interviews, every single question somebody asks you, you already know the name and the answer and the date and how it happened. I mean, you've been into this thing.
0: I've, I've been into this thing for a while now.
1: Um, what What's your opinion? Do you think he survived?
0: Oh, I totally think he survived the jump. I mean, if you look at the half dozen copycats, they all survived the jump. Um, and yeah. some of them didn't even know anything about skydiving. Uh, Marty Andrade's work, I bring this up a lot. Uh, in his book, Finding D.B. Cooper, he compares World War II bailouts to D.B. Cooper's survivability. And so there you have, you know, dudes in planes that have been shot down who had maybe a practice jump or maybe just classroom training on how to use this parachute. And their survivability rate after the if they jump out of the plane and pull the ripcord, is like 95 percent. So, oh, yeah, I just don't see. How Cooper didn't survive this?
1: No, I, I I agree. Now the beginning of your podcast, uh, which I really like the music and everything, it says never to be seen again.
0: Well, DB Cooper is never seen again. If if we go off the assumption that you know DB Cooper was you know Jim Paulson, then Jim Paulson was seen again, but we didn't right. know that it was DB Cooper.
1: Right. I I, I see what. Um, do you think? You think in all your work and all your podcasts, do you think that there's any leads that are left unchased?
0: That's a good question. I mean, the biggest one obviously would be the cigarette butts. If if those hadn't been lost or destroyed, that, that's a huge road we could go down on, you know, with like familial DNA sites, 23andMe, and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, that would be incredible. But as far as what leads we have that haven't been pursued. I really can't think of anything. I mean, so many people have looked at this case from so many different angles.
1: Right. Uh, Yeah, the cigarette butts. We all know about the cigarette butts. It's unfortunate they're lost and and all that. Is there anything out there that the world has never thought of yet that you can think of?
0: Well, I'm sure there is, but not that I can think of. (laughs) I'll, I'll tell you one thing that I absolutely hate, Dan, is people new to the case, generally throw out these two theories all the time. One is that right. Cooper never existed and that somehow right. the flight crew was in on it, right. which there's no evidence to support that theory. And all of those people had really good jobs that they would risk right. losing, not to right. mention jail time. Right, it, It's ridiculous. And if you are going to cut that money up seven ways, forget it. Those pilots made a great living. They weren't, yeah. we no. wouldn't risk that for $42,000 in cash.
1: And let me guess, the other one is that Cooper landed on the airplane in Reno.
0: Correct. He hid on the plane somehow and then walked off.
1: Totally bogus. How how good of a job did the FBI do in the first 60 days after this? In your opinion, how good of a job did FBI do doing what they did with what they had?
0: I think they did a good job. I mean, there's a lot of discussion over no one had boots on the ground for it's like 50 hours or something in the drop zone. But I think they didn't expect him to jump for one. Right. And then they didn't have any leads to go off of, you know, right. they did the best they could. I mean, they looked at basically everyone who had a United States parachuting license that vaguely could fit the description. They investigated pretty much all of those people.
1: Exactly. Now you've done all these podcasts. I mean, you, you've done a lot of this research, How many people are out there that are claiming that it was their dad, their brother, their sister, their uncle, their friend, their neighbor, and each one of them, I don't know if you saw the HBO documentary, it closes out by each one of them saying, there is no doubt my suspect is the guy. How many of them out there will raise their hand on a stack of Bibles and say, no doubt my guy
0: is the guy? Dozens of people. Dozens. Dozens of people. Uh, Eric Ulis, the first time I interviewed him was also the first time I met him. And we did that interview in a hotel room outside of uh, Portland, Oregon. And he walks in the door and he sits down with this big grin on his face. And he says, I know you've heard this before, but I've solved this case. And yeah, I I bring that up a lot because it's it's so cliche. Yeah. But I mean, all these people really do believe it. I mean, the Foremans, for example, I read their book about Barb Dayton and I thought it was not really believable wild story. DB Cooper is a trans woman. I mean, that's, that's insane, but I met the foreman's and they are the nicest, most honest, reasonable people. And I, I really took away from that, that it wasn't the foreman's are pushing this wild story. It's that they had a good close friend, who told them something that they believed. And then you sort of do like this backwards math to prove your friends or your dad's or your uncle's story. Yes.
1: Yes, exactly. And the foreman's, I don't think there's anybody that's trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes and fabricate something just for fun. Each one of them honestly, truly believes that their guy is the guy. Wouldn't you say? Yes.
0: Yes. Definitely.
1: Isn't that wild? 50 different ones that honestly believe that their guy and they're not making anything up. They have justified beyond a shadow of a doubt that their guy is the guy. I find that fascinating.
0: Oh, I find it fascinating as well. I had Tim Collins over the other day for a, another interview that'll be out pretty soon. And and he says repeatedly, I would bet my last breath that I'm correct.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, let me ask you this. What, what are the odds On the D.B. Cooper jump, the D.B. Cooper, whoever he was, we don't know. What are the odds that he disguised himself to some level? Wig, makeup, something, something, sunglasses. What are the odds that he did not want people to be able to figure out who he was later?
0: I think it's possible, but unlikely. So, I mean, we know he put the sunglasses on. He's wearing a suit. But Tina Mucklow sits next to him for four hours. And you have would never like makeup is brought up or to pay. Even you have this 22 year old gal sitting next to him for four hours and she wears makeup every day. So are you telling me someone who wears makeup every day and has for, you know, at least six years wouldn't notice that the gentleman sitting next to her is wearing makeup. I just, I don't believe that.
1: Correct. Correct. Now i, I... I threw makeup in there, I don't really mean makeup, but uh, sunglasses, wearing dark glasses on a dark airplane kind of tells me he's not wanting his eyes to be seen. Um, Would there be any other feature that he did not want seen, like maybe a cap or collar turned up or some type of clothing that he wouldn't normally wear? What are the odds that he put at least a little bit of effort into disguising his appearance?
0: I think it's definitely possible. Uh, Tom K makes this point, you know, if, if you're going to go commit a crime, a wild crime, Dan, are you going to wear something you're comfortable wearing or are you going to throw on a suit and tie that you almost never wear? Right. Right. So I I don't know the suit could have been for show, uh, but maybe, maybe it was part of the disguise. I, how many people on flights in 1971 wore a suit and tie. Uh, the numbers, all. Yeah, it's a lot higher than it is now. Now it's like oh, dudes in pajama pants.
1: Yeah, no, it's it, it was a very dressy thing in 71. Uh, do you think Northwest Airlines required a driver's license certification in order to buy that $20 ticket? What did they require in order for him to sign Dan Cooper? Whoever he was, what was the requirement in order
0: to buy that ticket? I don't know the answer to that. I, I've thought about that a lot, but it, it appears there was almost no requirement. I had um, Brendan corner on, he wrote the skies belong to us about the the golden age of skyjacking. And he pointed out there were flights in that time period where you could actually walk on the plane without a ticket. And then the stewardess would come and say, Oh yeah, you want to be on this flight? It's $22. And you could pay after boarding the plane.
1: Exactly. In fact, that's the way the rail system operated for years. The conductor would actually, after the train left the station, that's when he'd go down to there and take the manifest and collect the money after you're already on the train and the train's underway. That's how that used to happen every day. So the answer is Northwest Airlines did not have any kind of a verification or requirement to buy that. And you could you could literally grab a pen and write down anything you want on that line. Doesn't matter. As long as you are holding the ticket when it comes time to go through the gate. That's their only requirement. Each person boarding had to have a paper ticket.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, the fact that they wrote Dan on the ticket instead of Daniel says to me, he just said, oh, yeah, my name's Dan Cooper. And the gay agent just wrote that on there.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So my biggest question that I always ask everybody this, what do you think the odds are that D.B. Cooper, whoever he was, used his real name? Was Dan Cooper his real name or would anybody intending to wear dark glasses and hijack an airplane and put and carry a bomb? What are the odds that he would use his real name?
0: I think it's very, very low. I, I don't see him using his real name. I, you know, I was going to ask you, I ask everyone, do you think that comic book connection is something to look at?
1: Yeah, definitely. The Dan Cooper, uh, you know, I, I do not have a copy of that, but I've got several people that have told me about it and sent me pictures of it and stuff. Uh, that was definitely a deal. Dan Cooper was some kind of a superhero in the comic book world along about that time. So
0: yeah, a daredevil Royal Canadian Air Force pilot who was skydiving. There's a, an image in one of the comic books of him jumping from a commercial plane that's exploding. Yeah. I mean, there's some really interesting connections between Dan Cooper and that comic book.
1: Yeah, I, I can tell you, me personally, if I was going to hijack an airplane, there ain't no way I'm not going to board that airplane without a disguise and I'm not going to use my real name I mean I just um, I find that very difficult to swallow he put a lot of effort into not being able to let anybody figure out who he was and he did he was successful in leaving the airplane with nobody knowing who he was so he had to have put some effort in truth is there was no Dan Cooper so Dan Cooper had to have been and, and alias, while well, there was L. D. Cooper, uh, Marla's uncle, but that's really the only uh, connection. What What do you think about the jump conditions that night? After all your research and all the people you talked to, when he leaves the airplane, what are his What's his actual altitude and his jump conditions? What do you think?
0: I think the jump conditions are are perfectly fine. Yeah, it's a little bit cold, especially at ten thousand feet. I, I believe I've read it was fifteen degrees Fahrenheit at ten thousand feet that night, but the temperature on the ground is like 42 degrees and and raining. And if you're not from the Pacific Northwest and someone says raining, you picture like a rainstorm. No, if if you live in woodland or aerial near the drop zone, raining just means water from falling from the sky. There are many degrees of raining. And that night it was just, it was raining. You know, some might say it was sprinkling, but it certainly wasn't any storm of any kind.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, all the things that I read on the internet about bad terrain and mountainous and, and the bears. He had freezing rain, ice, ice pellets, and all this hostile terrain that he jumped in, in this in this raging storm. What what do you make of all of that wives tale stuff? Is there anything to any of that?
0: No, it's an exaggeration, kind of to sensationalize his jump a little bit more. I mean, it was just yeah. your typical November day in the Pacific Northwest gray skies and rain.
1: How, how difficult of a jump do you think this would have been? Prior to talking to me, what what's your estimate? I mean, it sounds like 727, man, that's a that's a tall order. You'd have to be a sky God to do that. What before, before you talking to me, what, what was your opinion of how hard that would be to jump out of a 727?
0: I didn't think it would be too difficult. I mean, most of the people I've talked to said it's fine. There's videos on YouTube of people doing that 727 jump. You know, the CIA was doing covert ops with the 727 uh, in Vietnam at the time, dropping supplies and and possibly people from it. So I, I never really thought the jump was too difficult out of a 727.
1: Uh, exactly me me either especially after I've, I've done it, i've got thousands of parachute jumps and honestly the seven two is probably one of the easiest ones i ever did i will tell you it's noisy that's a noisy jump I mean, <laughs> hearing protection required that, that's probably one of the screaminest loudest noisy but uh totally totally non-violent easy easy peasy for sure um, what do you know about the route that they flew that night based on all the stuff that you've talked to people, what what route did that 727 fly?
0: I'm a fan of the FBI's flight path. I, I just, the number of people who worked on that and the, the systems that they used to develop that flight path, not to mention the pilots being able to say, oh yeah, this is kind of where we were, this is where we were. I don't see any reason to to question it. Sure, the plane might've been one or two miles east or west here or there, but in general, I I agree with the FBI's flight path. What about you? Yeah,
1: I, I I do. And, uh, you know, uh, Radicek has been a friend of mine for, for many, many years. And, uh, I, it's been a long time ago, but I came across, uh, when I was with him one time, he let me take a picture of the actual VFR sectional that he had in the cockpit that night. It's probably the only copy in the world of this that shows his marking of where the jet actually went because he was the guy flying the airplane. So there's a navigation aid out there called the battleground VOR. Have you ever heard of that? Yes. So that that's the ground-based navigation that defines where this highway in the sky makes a bend. and that VOR used to be called the Portland VOR. And then after the jump, I think like five or six years later, they they renamed it to battleground, but, that type of flying you're using an HSI and a DME and you're following a Victor airway, which is super easy to do, but you get station passage. Uh, You wait until you're over the top of it before you start your turn. It would have been a right-hand turn after you passed battleground. So we overshot a little bit and swung it back around his flight path that he's got drawn on the map is exactly the way I would have flown it under those conditions. I mean, it's totally typical. So I, I agree with the, with the path of the, of, of the airplane. i and it, it, frankly, it doesn't make much difference. It definitely came down Victor 23 uh, as they were supposed to. And when it got to Battleground VOR, it made its turn like it's supposed to. you got three guys up front paying attention to navigation before the days of GPS. They were all paying attention to navigation. Do you know why paying attention to navigation was so critical to them that night? No. It's because they're flying in the neighborhood of terrain. The only way you can guarantee that your jet's not going to bump into anything out there at 10,000 feet is to stay on that highway. So you're safe on the highway. The Victor 23, if you're on it at 10,000, you're safe. If you get off of that, any out there further to the east, you are in danger of bumping into terrain, which would be sudden death for everybody. So whenever you're flying below the peaks of the mountains in the neighborhood of mountains, The the imperativeness to stay on your airway is heightened. And that's one thing everybody's paying attention to is hugging that airway because there's stuff out there that we don't want to bump into.
0: So you're not into anyone saying the plane was 10 miles west of Victor 23.
1: Absolutely not. No. Radicek told me himself. Radicek flew the airplane. He's he's a pilot. He's a pilot's pilot. You're flying Victor 23 with an HSI and a DME. Frankly, a third grader could do it, but they got three guys up in the cockpit watching two HSIs and two DMEs. They're not going to let that needle get off. There's no way you're going to be, you're going to be dead, nuts centered on that thing. And he told me that they were. So any of this stuff about being, you know, way off Victor 23, I can tell you right now, no way, not, not those three guys, they're airline pilots and they know the stakes, they know how critically important it is to nail Victor 23, and I believe they did.
0: Is Radzak super tired about talking about D.B. Cooper?
1: Um, I don't think he's super tired. I think he actually enjoyed it over the years. Radizak was a little bit disappointed in the individual, whoever he was, that put him and his passengers at peril. Uh, and rightly so. He was a little bit, you know... Uh, he's he's not in love with D.B. Cooper, whoever he was. He doesn't appreciate what happened. But when it's all said and done, there is a 10% um, notoriety. I think he enjoyed, you know, in his younger years, he went and he gave some talks and he was the featured speaker at a few places. He was the guy. And he never flaunted that. Bill is such a humble guy and an easygoing guy. Uh, As an airman, he's a genius. He has flown so much stuff. Uh, I've got 17,000 hours. Ratichek probably has double that. And he flew all the old stuff. Um, you know, I flew DC-9 as a captain for Delta that had only HSI and DME. That's one of the uh, last DC-9s in America. So I did the same thing, different airplane, but same method of navigation. But Raticek, uh, you know, he's getting on up there. I talk to him now and then, and he's, he's frail. And I, I, I think he's ready to close the, the lid on this and, uh, and call it
0: good. He'd like to see it be solved.
1: I don't know if he would or not. You know what my main question is, Darren? Yeah. What does Darren want? Does Darren want to see this solved?
0: Well, would I there, have an answer for that.
1: Would there be a letdown in your life if this was suddenly over? Would you feel deflated if this was all of a sudden, miraculously, somehow, suddenly over. What would that do to Darren?
0: I've I've thought about this a lot and I can tell you the case either has to be solved to my satisfaction, which is I get to know what happened when his boots hit the ground. Where was he? What did he do? Was this thing planned out for months and months in advance? Did he write it down on a cocktail napkin the night before? I want to know all the details. If I don't get to know all the details, then I want it to remain unsolved. If we find out that it was one of these suspects or a suspect we never heard of, and we find out for sure it was this gentleman, but he died in 1997 and I don't get to know those details, forget it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go out on a limb and make a prediction for you, for your, for your podcast listeners. I think that on the 50th anniversary, Darren Schaefer, is going to be satisfied beyond the shadow of a doubt what the conclusion was and who did it. That's my prediction.
0: Yeah, but now you're gonna make me wait until until that date. I saw on your YouTube video on your Probable Cause channel, you claimed you've solved the case. I claimed that I'm going to convince you that you've solved the case. But we don't get to know today. No. That's so lame, Dan. <laughs>
1: You got to build some suspense here, and I'm I'm not done now. Uh, you know I am going out there on the 24th, and I'm making a parachute jump. And uh, I don't know if you want to play that audio clip that I uh, texted you. But I thought that was hilarious. Okay,
0: and uh, of course you'll have bundles of cash when you jump out, and you'll lose it, and
1: it'll float up the river. How does that work? <laughs> how How did you know?
0: What's <laughs> your email address, Dan? <laughs>
1: Dan at dangrider.com. Okay, I will send you. Oh, is this the Dan Grider from YouTube and and all the other uh, outlets that I keep hearing about? That's me. All oh, right, on. I've seen some of your work. It's it's excellent. Keep it up. Well, I, I appreciate that. And uh, my my last video that I just posted the other day talks a little bit about coming out to Portland and doing the D.B. Cooper jump. So if you go look at that, that's kind of a long video. But at the very beginning, I'm, I'm talking about uh, getting my gear together and getting ready to come out to uh, replicate the D.B. Cooper jump. So hilarious. Totally hilarious. But, no, the whole Portland community, you know, they, they, they know all about this. What do you think about the D.B. Cooper community? What would happen if something changed on November 24 with the entire community stood back and go, uh, that's it, That it. that is it. Now, keep in mind, Darren, all your people that you've talked to always hear these words about hard evidence, hard evidence, what hard evidence. Our days of hard evidence in this case are over. There is no hard evidence to be reclaimed or gained. You're down to what a jury would be in a criminal trial, which they would convict under a jury trial for uh, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt you have to convince a jury you can use circumstantial evidence you can use whatever you want you can put the person at the scene with the motive and all the kind of stuff and you send it to a jury is this person guilty beyond a reasonable doubt and that's that's all we have left in DB Cooper at this point
0: all that we know of i mean there all could we- be she, some dude has a handful of 20s and a ticket stub in his right. sock drawer that he's waiting to reveal. Right. So I think that's usually the hard evidence people are talking about. They want to see a 20 or a ticket stub or a parachute. Right.
1: Right. Uh, why do you think he did it? Whoever he was, why did he do it?
0: Oh, I have no idea. I have no idea why he did it. Cause I, I, I don't know who did it. So how could right. I know why they did it if I don't know who, I mean, he says on the plane, I don't have a grudge against your airline, miss. I just have a grudge. Right. I mean, it's so vague.
1: Right. Well, the, the, the main thing that people go for all the time is uh, for, to answer the question of why is money. Okay, $200,000. There's, there's one reason why. What, what could be some other reasons why? If you had to venture a guess, what, there had to be some motivation other than the $200,000 in cash what what other motivations can you think of that would be likely scenarios? What what would cause you to do it besides the money? What would cause Darren Schaefer to go pull this off?
0: Revenge,
1: revenge, yeah,
0: revenge. Just, I like the revenge motive. I mean, uh, Bill Rollins, his suspect Joe Lackich, that's all. Uh, it's all revenge based. Do you know that? Is it the November '59 story? November '60 something. But there was a Joe Lackich's daughter. She's killed in a shootout with the FBI after her boyfriend brought her onto this airplane. He tried to take off and the FBI just shot it up. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I do remember something about that, but I'm, I'm definitely not an expert on, on that one. How about your assessment of US government efficiency? How smart they are, how genius, their, their ability to solve and reason and all that kind of thing. In 1971, you know, consider today. It takes a full day just to go to your local DMV and mess with your tags or get a driver's license. Government inefficiency, there's 50 people and nobody knows what's going on and your application gets lost and there's something wrong and it takes you 50 bucks and all day long just to get a driver's license. How about the inefficiency of the investigative organizations at the time? Where where do you put our U.S. government on a skill set in 1971 for having the ability To find this guy,
0: I would put it pretty high. I mean, your DMV example is—I think it's a little wonky because, yeah, the DMV sucks. But if you had the FBI's track record, okay, these are all of the crimes the FBI was responsible for. What percentage of them did they get their guy? You know, I think that's pretty high. And just the number of agents that worked on the case—not only immediately but throughout the years. I think they did a good job.
1: Yeah, well, we're fixing to
0: find out. I take it to- you don't think they did a good job.
1: I don't think they did a good job. Why is that? Well, I got four hours worth of interviews that I did with uh, Himmelsbach. Mm-hmm. I'm going to play. I'm going to play one of them right now. I hope the audio comes through okay. But I'm in his house interviewing him on camera, and so I asked him about several things. Uh, on this particular question. I'm about to ask him about the position of the fuel truck in Seattle and what he remembers about it. Because I had like four or five sources that were always talking about how specific D.B. Cooper was, whoever D.B. Cooper was, in positioning this fuel truck off the left-hand side of the airplane where he could keep an eye on it, he could see it, and it had to be positioned... Yes, it had to be not near the terminal. It had to be out away from everything. That's all fine. But he gave specific instruction as to where this fuel truck was going to be. So I'm going to play this clip just so your listeners can verify. I do have this video footage of back and all these interviews from 12 years ago that have never seen daylight. And those are coming out in my video that's going to be released November 24. And I've cut up all these videos for each little section that I want to talk about that illustrates kind of where we were immediately after the jump. Because at this time, 12 years ago, this scene was still very fresh in Ralph's mind. He remembered this like the back of his hand. He was sharp and he didn't miss a beat. Let's listen to this. Here's my question to him Each truck had to park in a designated spot. Yeah. because it was his specific request yeah. that that truck parked in that spot. Remember that? Yeah, I, I do remember that he was very specific about it, but it it, 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 it it was difficult for me to see how that could be of any special uh, interest. So Ralph is saying, yes, I do remember that that's, that, that was a deal. It was a specific instruction. So I've got like, 50 of these snippets with Ralph where I ask the question and he gives me the answer. And at this point, all those are very valuable because there is a lot of really good information in the Ralph Himmelsbach tapes.
0: He was an interesting character.
1: Did you ever meet him?
0: I did not.
1: Yeah. Um, well, that's, uh, that's all part of the, I'm, I'm producing this massive video that I'm assembling right now. Uh, to try to get it done by the 50th anniversary my my contention is my goal is to convince darren Schaefer. i want to convince darren Schaefer that this is solved and that's a tall order don't you think that's a tall order
0: i do think that's a tall order is is this a suspect's name that i've heard before
1: uh, this this is one I believe. Uh, now I'm not an expert in your gene pool totally because uh, you've done far more research this, but uh, I, th- I think this I think this is one that's already been churned through the mill at some point over the course of time. I would be my guess.
0: Okay. Do you, the drop zone, Dan? Do you think the drop the FBI's drop zone is accurate? Uh, no. Really, where do you think he landed?
1: Well, let me ask you this. Who did the FBI have on their team that was the 727 pilot or a jumper?
0: Probably no one.
1: No one. How could they get it right? How how is it possible for them to get it right? They never consulted. They didn't go talk to any jumper, and they didn't go out to recreate what D.B. Cooper had done. Now, they did recreate a day flight with with the stare down just to show what position it would fly in in the trail position. They did that. So let me ask you this.
0: Well, and they pushed that sled off the back to see yeah. if that pressure bump was recreated.
1: Right, right. And they could have done that by sending a human body off the back of the stairs easily, you know, and, and recreate They didn't need a sled. Uh, that's that's uh, The bump is caused when you pull the release handle. The stairs free falls down to that mid-trail position and then it's going to stay right there, but the bump is caused by when you pull the release handle and that thing free falls, the stairs is very heavy. I mean, it's very heavy. You don't want to be standing underneath one of these on the ramp, but somebody pulls the handle because it will come down with a vengeance. Now, in flight, it's going to fall down to about there because air load is going to keep it from going all the way down. Hydraulic power normally will drive it all the way to the full down position, but without turning the switch on to to jam that stairs down it just goes down to that mid-trail position and it sits there it's perfect it's a it's a perfect stair it just it just sits there is all it does so let let me let me ask a darren schaefer question now your goal is to stay alive right
0: always has been
1: always has been so i'm going to put you next week in a 727 i'm going to give you the instructions on how to pull the ripcord you got one shot at this. I'm going to fly you right down Victor 23 at 10,000 feet. I'm going to stand you back out there in that air stair. And you can see the earth as you're flying down there. Look down. When when do you think would be a good time to jump? What are you looking for?
0: I was just about to ask you that. What are you looking at? And then at 10,000 feet, He's probably like right in the cloud cover at that point. So what do you see? Can you see where you're going to land from there?
1: No, you cannot see where you can land, but you can see the earth and you can see orientation. I can tell you the skydivers, number one main role is never jump until you know exactly where you are. You cannot exit over a black hole. No one in their right mind would exit over a black hole Forty miles north of Portland, there's not a light out there. Most of that area doesn't even have electricity. You don't exit any airplane over a black hole. Nobody does and nobody would. If I put you on the air stair and asked you to do it, you would stand there until you saw something a little bit more reassuring. What's going to be more reassuring in about four minutes down the road? What what are you going to start to see? The city. Vancouver, the river, Portland. Is it visible from 10,000 feet? Can you see it?
0: I would say, yeah, definitely.
1: What does Radicek say?
0: They saw the lights of Portland.
1: Yes. There was no significant cloud cover. You could definitely see the lights of north of Portland is Vancouver. Absolutely. You can see the earth. I'm a skydiver. The only way I can get seriously killed is jumping over a black hole. Because at night, I don't have any idea what I'm going to land on or in or near. I don't even have a way to flare. If I can get closer to the lights of the city, I've afforded myself some additional layer of safety. So that in the skydiving world, that's called the spot. Before you make a jump, you already know where the spot is going to be. And sometimes we say, let's take it out long. Let's go a little bit past the spot. Let's take it on out another half mile. Let's take it out a little long. Or you could say, the winds are such, I'm, uh, I'm leaving just a little bit before the spot. But we always talk about the spot. Before we jump, we already know where the spot is. Standing on the stair, you have an excellent view of the earth. It's down there right where we left it. The earth is still there. There's no reason to exit over a black hole. He's a smart guy with gear and he's standing on the step. Why would you leave the airplane 40 miles north of civilization?
0: Maybe so you don't get caught.
1: Mm, no, no, you, you you're def- you're going to be dead if you do that. Around canopy, over a black hole—that's that's definitely a recipe for death. Uh, how about the how about the field elevation up there? Forty miles north. What kind of terrain? What kind of field elevation are we talking about?
0: I don't I don't think there's anything much over like fifteen hundred feet in that area.
1: No, but it's it's sloping. There's there's all kinds of terrain and, and, and steep grade and things like that. How about the area within 15 miles of the Portland airport? If you drew a 15-mile radius around the Portland airport, what do you have sticking up out there?
0: A lot less.
1: It's flat. It's totally flat. Uh, field elevation, all within 15 miles of the Portland airport, field elevation is about seven feet, MSL. It's flat as a pancake out there. There's nothing to hit. They don't even have any pine trees in most of that area. That is your, if I was going to plan a jump, remember nobody jumps without planning their jump. D.B. Cooper, whoever he was, he planned his jump. He was not an idiot. He planned where he's going to leave the airplane at. If I put you out there in the air stair, I guarantee your boots would be shaken, your knees would be shaken until you came over something that looked a little bit more reasonable in terms of terrain. Now you can see, ah, we're back to home territory here. There's lights, it's flat, there's people, there's there's highways, there's safety, there's civilization. Don't exit an airplane 40 miles north where there's no civilization. You're you're not gonna get caught on a night parachute jump, no matter you could have landed on the airport at Portland if you wanted to. Nobody would have ever seen it.
0: That's a pretty good point.
1: Nobody'd ever see it, nobody paying attention. I mean, you'd have to be really looking up at the sky and seeing it, but you're at, at night, you're not going to see a parachute coming down. You would have to be ironically happen standing at the exact same spot and happen to be looking the correct way to see him land his parachute wherever he landed.
0: Oh yeah. I had, I had a guest on way back who said, uh, you know, if somebody parachuted and landed in your backyard last night, would you know? No, and, no, I, I wouldn't. No,
1: no, no. It So, uh, Yeah, there's a there's a lot of holes and all the kind of stuff. But my my premise is, is that uh, I want to make this wager. uh, uh, I don't want to bet the guy his uh, last breath because I don't know how we'd ever pay up on that one. (laughs) But (laughs) I uh, I, I'm not going to tell you what I think, but I'm going to tell you that my prediction is, is that by turkey day by november 25th you're going to call me and you're going to tell me dan it's over it's over
0: that's a bold statement
1: you're going to call me darren you're going to call me on my cell and you're going to tell me it's over
0: but i have to wait a month and a half to find out
1: you've been waiting 50 years
0: (laughs) yeah that's a good point that's a good point you'll be all right let me ask you since you've jumped out of an airplane before what do you think of a water landing for cooper
1: yeah, but landing in, in water is, is definitely something to be considered. You got a lot of water around there. That all goes into jump planning and knowing where the winds were aloft were and when where to exit that airplane. That's, that's critical. Um, I got a lot of round parachute jumps. and um, Now, when I jump here coming up in a few weeks out in Portland, I'm jumping a square during the day, so it's not critical at all. I, I'll be able to land on a postage stamp. I'm going to land right in the exact spot where the media is where I told him, this is where I'm landing. I'll land within three feet of where I said I was going to land night jump on a round your odds of landing in water are not super high, but they're that that's the thing landing in water. It's this possibility. If he did land in water, he could definitely swim out of it and swim to shore and survive. No problem.
0: Good to hear. I had another parachutist on who said, uh, a nighttime water landing is certain death but then i no. had a uh, a navy seal and pj on the show air force pararescue and uh, he said if i was planning this i would plan a water landing yeah. but that he's a goofball cuz that's like his specialty you know is water landing yeah.
1: now water landing would definitely be cumbersome the the danger there is is getting drowned in your parachute where you can't find the surface cuz you're underneath the parachute and the ver- Parachute's very heavy when it's on the surface of the water and you can't get air because you're at the top trying to breathe. But if you don't freak out and you get rid of your boots where you can tread water a little bit, you can find a way to to swim loose of your harness. If you know you're going in water, uh, I've made water jumps before myself, but I always loosen up my harness before I hit and get everything nice and loose, get my leg straps loose. As soon as I'm in the water, I'm swimming away from that harness and I let the whole thing go behind me. So uh it i'm sure he had thought about whoever he was he had thought about water landing but land, landing in water is actually probably the easiest way to guarantee no injury you're not yeah, going to hurt landing in water
0: yeah especially on that train unless you drown then you it's so different
1: far uh, a, a knee or an ankle injury uh a net jump in water is probably the safest thing he could have done but i i don't think I, I don't think whoever he was, anybody would intend to aim for the water. That, that's hard. That's so difficult to do. The water's cold. You don't know where you are. How far is it to, to the nearest shoreline? You know, you're disoriented. You got to get out of that gear. So landing, landing someplace on land, field pack in your chute and burying it in three feet of sand is definitely the order of the day.
0: So where do you think Cooper landed then?
1: Darren, you are pumping me for so many answers. I mean, what is this—a a cortex of a, a DB Cooper vortex podcast? You're trying to start a, a podcast, aren't you? You are pumping me for information in advance. I, I think he landed. I think he landed safely,
0: but we don't get to know where until November 24th.
1: I will tell you that I'm going to land my parachute where I think DB Cooper landed. All right. When I, when I go out there. So wherever the media trucks are, I'm going to show you the map. I'll show you at that point, you're going to know the whole story, but I'm going to, I'm going to show you why. I'm going to land, I believe, within a half a mile of where D.B. Cooper jumped. I'm going to leave the airplane at the same spot he would have left the airplane. Because if I was making a night jump, that's where I'd leave the airplane. That's what, That's the way I'd do it. I've done night jumps. That's If I had to do this, I'm definitely not going to do it without planning it. Think about this one. This is still eight weeks away. I'm already knee deep involved in the planning with maps and people and jump planes and pilots. I'm already planning this thing out right now. I already know how I'm going to do this, who's going to fly, how this is going to happen. Planning my exit point are going to be so completely well defined by the time I get there because I am a jumper. What's my goal? I want to stay alive.
0: Was Cooper a jumper? Yes. He wasn't a novice like the FBI says
1: uh well depends on your definition of novice back then sports skydiving was a new thing and there were very few people that had any experience so if he had several military jumps and several sport jumps then he would have been considered experienced and he definitely could have done that in today's world i have over a thousand parachute jumps and i'm a novice because all the big dogs have 10 12 and fifteen thousand jumps and they look at me and go ah you're yeah, one of those little thousand jump guys, you know. So I got a thousand jumps and I'm considered a newbie. In 71, there's nobody in the world that had a thousand jumps. Nobody. So the sport has evolved to, to that condition. Um, but Cooper, whoever he was, was not a novice. He, he understood the gear. He understood how to put it on. He understood how to exit the airplane. And he understood his rip cord and he understood his reserve system. He understood all of that perfectly.
0: Yeah. Marty Andrade again, you know, he brings up the point that the last time Tina looks at DB Cooper, he's throwing that, that harness on. And Marty brings out this point that Tina said, it looked like he'd done it many times before. And your average person doesn't pick up a parachute harness and slip right into it. No,
1: no, no. You have to know what you're doing. And uh, I do it all the time. i Put parachutes on and off, but I've been putting parachutes on for forty years, and it's funny because I handed one to somebody last week. Said, "Here, put this on," and they're like, "They're all awkward with it. Like, where does my leg? How does how does this work? Where where you put your arm? What what is this strap for?" But I don't even think about it. You know, it's like here it is. I can go chink chink. I can put a parachute on inside of an airplane while we're climbing to altitude. You know, it just it fits.
0: Didn't uh, Travis Pastrana jump out of a plane? without a parachute and then put it on in the air?
1: Yeah, that's been done several times. I'm not sure if he was the guy that he might have, but yeah, that's been done several times.
0: Yeah, I remember him like drinking a Red Bull because it gives you wings when he jumped out of the plane shirtless. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And see, that sounds totally fantastic too, but that's, that's also not that big of a deal. Putting a parachute on in flight while you're in free fall, piece of cake. I wouldn't do it myself, but for those guys with that level of free fall skill set, no problem. No problem at all.
0: Did Cooper have military experience?
1: Yeah, yeah. He, he, he likely had all kinds of previous somehow experience doing something. So <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think that he was a novice.
0: Yeah, but I mean, gentlemen in their mid to late 40s in 1971, the odds that they didn't have military service uh, were much higher than the odds that they did.
1: Right, right, exactly. So, it's uh, it's some exciting times, Darren. I've uh, when when did you start actively working on this? How many how many years ago?
0: Um, I really actively in twenty eighteen, but oh. a, around twenty fifteen is when I started reading the forums and reading the books and really yeah. getting into it.
1: All right. Well, I'm, uh, I'm a little bit ahead of you. I started actively working on this almost 20 years ago. So I've been to Tina's house. I've, I've known Radichat for 20 years. I've been to uh, the FBI guy. Uh,
0: Larry Carr? Ralph Himmelsbud. No, uh,
1: Ralph. I've been to Ralph's house twice. I've been to the Battleground VOR. I've been to Portland. I've probably made almost 20 trips to Portland working on this and shooting video and interviewing people and, and looking at the the lay of the land and all that stuff. So I I have been dogging this. Uh, You can ask my kids, just mention the name DB Cooper and they will roll their eyes. There goes dad on DB Cooper again, again, again. But see, I've been in the, I've been in the collection mode, even on tonight's interview with me. uh, I've been keeping score. I asked you more questions than you asked me.
0: Yeah. I noticed that. (laughs) So you talked to Tina Mucklow?
1: I've never talked to Tina. I have not. I've been to her house. Okay. Um, I I was out there on a trip and uh, I coordinated to uh, uh, to be there, but I did not. Um, I did not end up talking to her. Um, so, but I, I, I know where she lives. She's a very nice person, and I would never want to harass her or stalk her. She's a very private person, and frankly. There's really no, I wanted to go there and take, take a picture of where she lived and all that kind of stuff. But it was my, for my own personal education. Tina doesn't know anything. She was just a girl doing her job. And everybody's you know harassed her for all these years about, tell us who he was. Well, she doesn't know. How could she possibly know? She was just a young flight attendant. You know, She, she does not have this big secret that everybody thinks that she does. How, how could she know?
0: Yeah, I always say Tina has been damaged more by the publicity from the case than from the events that transpired November 24th,
1: 1971. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. She she only wanted to live a quiet, private life and do what she wanted to do. And she has been bombarded by this Cooper vortex for 50 years and the number of people that relentlessly, you know, knock her down and jam a camera in her face and all that kind of stuff, just totally... She's she's not happy over it. I know she's not, and rightfully so.
0: Yeah, that's why I've never really tried to approach her. Plus, my show's a little bit different. I, I had opportunities to have uh, a gentleman from the plane on the show, and it's like, what's he going to tell me? Right. You know, he happened to be on a plane 50 years ago. Right. He was, had no part of this. He maybe got a glimpse of this guy for one second. But, yeah, I mean... I'm not really interested in in having principles on the show.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. I, uh, you've got a fascinating podcast and you've, you've definitely uh, done your homework. You, and you know, I've listened to a lot of those back backlogged ones and, uh, you, you definitely know the players, you know, the material, you know, the story, you probably know more, all the detailed pieces than, than anybody out there. I mean, it's amazing.
0: I, I don't know the case the best, but I know the suspects the best. Right. I know. I know all of them. You know, I could tell you about Richard McCoy and his life and his family and his skyjacking. I could tell you about Raxra. I could tell you about Kenny Christensen. I right. mean, I, I've looked into all of these and you have yeah. certain suspect peddlers who they know Christensen and he was D.B. Cooper, but aren't really willing to listen to anything else. right? And one of the reasons I started the show was all these different books have different theories and different suspects and approach it from a different angle. I wanted the show to have all of those in one place. So you yeah. could hear, you know, Robert Blevins tell you that it's Kenny Christensen. And in the next episode you have, you know, Dr. David Gold telling you that, Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers are D.B. Cooper.
1: Yeah, no, you've done that. Uh, you, you, you've done a nice, a nice job of that. And I, I think it's fascinating. You know, I, I went back and rewatched the HBO documentary uh, a couple nights ago. That starking conclusion that, that they've got at the end of that where every one of those including Joe, I swear on a stack of Bibles that my guy was him. Every one of them tells you the exact same thing. I swear my guy was the guy? I was at Marla's house two or three weeks ago. What a what a great lady! We've been friends for years, but she's absolutely convinced she is not saying anything. She's not fabricating anything. Maybe her uncle LD was DB Cooper. I don't know, but she is convinced that all the others are wrong and she's right. And every every single person has that stance. Is that ironic?
0: Yeah, it's pretty wild.
1: It's totally wild. Marla can sing. She is a vocalist extraordinaire. I mean, we had a great time. I spent uh, a whole Saturday with her talking about Dee Cooper and playing guitars.
0: <laughs> Marla is one of the most charming women I've ever spoken to. Yeah, there there is something about her that is charming. I, I haven't met her in person yet, so I'll meet her at CooperCon coming up, but. I've spoken to her on the phone a handful of times and we did the podcast together and there's just something so charming about her.
1: Yeah. She's, she's a classic. You know, I I went out there to uh, talk to her mostly about D.B. Cooper and I walked in her entire house's musical instruments and we talked about D.B. Cooper and looked at some pictures and some evidence that she had and all this kind of stuff. And then we uh, dove in on musical instruments Picked up a guitar. We played guitar for like three hours and uh, didn't get back to DB Cooper till you know after dinner. But uh, had a had a great time. But uh, I've visited quite a few of the other players over the years and things like that. I just I just find it so fascinating how indigent every single person is that their guy is the guy. It's totally wild.
0: Oh, and willing to fight about it.
1: And willing to fight about it.
0: Okay, so let me ask you this. November 24th, you release all your information and uh, the case is going to be closed. What does that do to the Cooper Vortex and that community? Do you think they're going to agree with you and say, oh yeah, Dan's right, we're done? My prediction is that I'm going to get
1: 99% buy-in from the entire community. I'm going to get 1% headbutting from the people who are totally wrapped around their guy and there's going to be hell to pay over that i'm i think i'm going to end up in a landslide 99 and that'll be my litmus test that's how i'm going to know how i did what is the response this is like a jury trial how did the how did the jury vote is dan right or is dan wrong
0: and you think 99 out of 100 will say you're right See, now here you are, another person saying, I'm absolutely sure.
1: I'm absolutely sure that I'm going to convince you what the scenario was, and you're going to come to your own conclusion. I'm not going to tell you right now what I think the scenario was. My job is to explain it to you with the information, video, and the leads that I've generated so that so that it becomes very obvious to you. I want you to come to your own conclusion on your own without me telling you who it was. I want you to come to your own conclusion on your
0: own. All right. Gosh, I can't believe that you're going to make us wait. If I was sitting on the solve for this case, uh, maybe I would wait as well. Might as well wait for the 50th anniversary.
1: Well, I, I, I have to wait. I have I have 12 weeks of editing to do in the next six weeks. And I got a parachute jump to make, I have two airplanes to deliver. I, I got so much stuff going on. I got to go play a gig up in uh, I got a music deal. I got to go do. I, I got so much stuff. I got, I got to change two tires on the DC three. I got, I need 27 hours in each day to get everything done that I need to get done. It, it's going to be a stretch to have this documentary done. This is is going to be an actual documentary, my first YouTube actual full-length documentary in my cheesy style. This is going to be a Dan documentary, take it or leave it. But here's the information. You watch the video clips, you look at the information, you come to your own conclusion when it's all said and done. It's YouTube. I can put anything on there that I want to. And you can tell me, Dan, that's a poor job. Your editing sucks. That's a really bad job. You did this wrong. You did this wrong. You're playing your banjo on your YouTube channel. And I don't like the banjo. I'm just going to tell you that's my YouTube channel. And I'm going to do it the way I want to. That's that it is what it is. You can either watch it or don't watch it, but I'm going to tell you exactly the information that you need so that you Darren Schaefer can come to the logical conclusion that you need to come to. And when you do on November 25, you are going to call me and you are going to tell me that I was right.
0: Well, why would I wait till the 25th? I'll watch it the second it's out.
1: Yeah, well, you won't be able to call me on the 24th. So you're going to have to call me on the 25th. Unless you're <laughs> going to be out there.
0: No, I will have gonna... just left Portland.
1: Are you going to be out there on the 24th?
0: No, I think I'm leaving the 22nd or the 23rd. You should stay for the
1: 24th. That's that's the actual anniversary. That's that's when I'm doing the jump.
0: Yeah, uh, maybe I'll change my travel plans.
1: You should. This is a big deal. It's a big deal. You should be there for the 24th. I'll let you ride the airplane with me if you want.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. All right. I might do that.
1: I'll push you out.
0: <laughs> I'll finally get to live out my fantasy of being D.B. Cooper.
1: Yeah. Well, this is, this is one in a billion. This is literally one in a billion. And I wouldn't be going out on this kind of a limb uh, unless, I, unless I had my act together. I can tell you right now on this one, this is over.
0: Let me ask you this. Do you have any theory for how the money got to Tina Bar?
1: Absolutely.
0: Really? What is it? Oh, yeah. But I don't get to know that till November 24th.
1: A theory? That's someone's personal idea on, on a method of how something happened. Did you ask me what a theory was?
0: <laughs> no. What's your theory for how the money oh. got to Tina Barr?
1: Oh, yeah. You're going to have to wait for that. But I'm going to explain all that to you as well. And you're going to tell me, Dan, you're absolutely right on all aspects you hit this out of the ballpark, you're correct. That's my
0: prediction. How long have you been working on this one suspect?
1: Uh, I haven't been working on any one suspect. I've been working on an entire thing for 20 years.
0: When did you first come across this name?
1: Uh, well, 20 years ago, there was already quite a few in, in the gene pool that, that I looked at and uh, visited and started. Now, this is before, this is back when the internet was first getting going. So uh, at the time, uh, the book deals were few and far between. Norjack hadn't been written yet. And uh, uh, several of the, of the bigger ones, Marla's book was not out. So none of that stuff was out there yet. So the, the internet was limited. And, and the suspect pool was a lot more limited 20 years ago. I just find it fascinating how, as time goes on, the suspect pool keeps on growing.
0: That is that curious. One?
1: Yeah. Here's here's one more guy. Well, you know, my neighbor does look like him.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've had that person on the show.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this has got to be it because my neighbor sure looks like him. Check out my neighbor's picture. Well, everybody looks like that. I think you kind of look a little bit like BB Cooper. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You yeah, could be. But you're from out there, maybe it's your dad.
0: I said on the show once, uh talking about the sketches, I said, you know. In 1971 most middle-aged men had the same haircut wore the same clothes they smoke they drank they had military yeah. service I mean that's most middle-aged men in 1971 and I said yeah. go find a picture of your grandpa he looks just like the sketch and a couple yeah. people emailed me the one in particular a picture of their grandfather you're right he looks just like the sketch
1: <laughs> yeah uh, yeah now that whole sketch thing especially Whoever D.B. Cooper was, wore the glasses. Uh, when you can't see a person's eyes and their facial features with that big of a glasses, you're missing 90% of build, being able to build a profile uh, just with a pair of glasses. That's very limiting. And he never took the sunglasses off. She never saw his eyes.
0: Well, didn't he? he boarded without him and Alice saw, or Florence, Florence saw him without the sunglasses, and then he put them on after passing the note.
1: Yes, but she boarded 55 people at the same time. So, I mean, and she boards people every day, so you, your brain just can't process. She doesn't have a digital picture of the guy that passed her in the aisle. You know, she. He, I'm sure he did board without him, but the entire time in the back of the airplane with Tina, he's got a pair of sunglasses on, and they're big. Those are big. So, I... I I I don't know, but this is gonna be a fun one, Darren. This is literally, this is I'm 60 years old. This is a crowning deal for me. This is huge. My entire family will tell you. Dan's the parachute guy, Dan's the airplane guy, Dan has dogged this thing. I have been everywhere. I've been to every one of these guys' houses. I've talked to them all. I've called them all. I've made so many trips to Portland. I've been to Ariel. I've been to the I've I've got video at the Battleground VOR, you know? <laughs> it's crazy, but you're about to see the whole thing. And I'm I'm gonna have a good time doing
0: it. Well, I definitely can't wait. How many people know about this but are keeping quiet? None. Only you, huh?
1: Yeah.
0: Hmm. Let, let me ask you this. Who is in your opinion the worst suspect?
1: Oh, for sure, Joe Weber.
0: Or Dwayne Weber. Dwayne Weber, yeah. You know, Joe Weber actually passed away this year, February yeah. 11th, 2021.
1: Yeah, I knew that. Yeah. Now, Dwayne, that, that whole Dwayne Weber thing ain't, ain't no way. That, that was one of the early ones, and she's been dogging that for forever, trying to convince everybody that Dwayne Weber was him. But that, that's definitely, in my opinion, that's the worst of the bunch.
0: What about uh, Robert Rockstraw?
1: One, one of the pack – you know, definitely, definitely one of the pack. Are you trying to do a process of elimination?
0: <laughs> right. I was going to list all of the suspects. <laughs> you know, Rackstraw I bring up because he gets a lot of media attention. And yeah. if you, if you go on the DB Cooper forum or the drop zone and say, Hey, what do you guys think of Rackstraw? No one likes him. Right. So it's like the people who are most familiar with the case say it's not Rackstraw. Yeah. But somehow he's getting all this media attention. And yeah. the two suspects that the FBI had in custody, they had Richard McCoy in custody, and they had Rackstraw in custody for the murder of his stepfather when he right. was still vaguely a Cooper suspect. Right, And I think if there was anything to those, it, them being D.B. Cooper, the FBI right. would have been able to connect some dots right, and, and get was- him on that.
1: Was uh, was one of those the copycat
0: guy? Richard McCoy is a copycat. He's the copycat
1: guy. Okay, mm-hmm. all right.
0: And yeah. both McCoy and Rackstraw were you know twenty seven and twenty eight years old. So I I have a hard time with a bunch of gals saying it's a dude in his mid to late forties, right? And then presenting a suspect as twenty seven, right? I mean, Tina should be able to see the difference between a man who's five years older than her and a man who's 25 years older than her.
1: Yeah. You, you would think, but you know, she's, she was a young girl. She was a flight attendant. She was brand new. She wasn't trained in facial recognition and crime solving. She was just trying to do her job, you know, and she got thrown a lot. It's very, very unfortunate what she went through because of, of all this. So, uh, I, don't, I don't blame her uh, for not being able to stand up and tell us who V.B. Cooper was. And there's no way she could know. No way.
0: Why do you think this story appeals more to men than women?
1: Well, it's got the Robin Hood effect. This is, uh, anytime somebody pulls something totally insane off and gets away with it, it's like Evel Knievel jumping the Grand Canyon. It's insane and it's death defying, but he did it and he lived. Yeah, He's a hero. I ain't doing that, but Evel evil did it. Look at all the people that do stunts? And, you know, they pull off something that can't, they do something that can't be done and they become a Robin Hood family name hero. So like, look what this guy did. And the, for, for a bulk of the American public, jumping out of an airplane is insane in the first place because they don't understand it. Just the concept or even mentioning jumping out of an airplane you'll get people start breathing heavy like oh it scares me just to think about it well it's not really that big of a deal you know i mean if you try it a few times it's it's pretty safe it's actually kind of fun and it's it doesn't you can put a pulse meter on me leaving an airplane at ten thousand feet my pulse doesn't change i don't care i'll stand in the door and fall out the door makes no difference totally safe but for most people they don't view it that way so the The fact that the guy got away with $200,000 and he hijacked an airplane and he can't be found. There's an element of, well, good on him, you know, good on him. Don't you think?
0: Oh, I definitely think so. And the fact that no one was physically harmed, he didn't stab anyone. He didn't, the bomb didn't go off and the plane explode and crash into a mountain. So you don't have this guilt associated with it. You know, If I rooted for the guy who robbed the Wells Fargo down the road, but he shot the teller, um, you know, right. that took a dark turn, so you can't really root for that guy, but in Cooper doing this without physically harming anyone right. it taking place in Portland and Seattle, where this rebel kind of lifestyle is encouraged, right. uh, I think that really contributed to the fact that he's become a folk hero.
1: He is, he's, he's definitely a folk hero and, uh, that's why I'm wondering about the overall net effect if I'm able to achieve my 99 to one ratio that I'm predicting how devastating is that going to be to those who wish they could go the rest of their life and and put him on a pedestal and never know who he was is there an element of aura to this just by virtue of the fact that no one knows who he is does that add the extra element that they need to make him the folk hero if oh, I tell hell you, yes
0: hell yes I think so yeah it, it that's an interesting question. How much attention will this get when it's solved? Who's going to care then?
1: Right. Nobody's going to care.
0: There will be, when you solve it on the 24th, next month, there will be definitely a a period of time where the interest is super high because people will be, you know, learning about the work that you've done and then want to do some of the research on their own about that case or that suspect. So I think you'll have this peak right after it's solved, but then, then, yeah, it's, it's done. This is a crime that happened 50 years ago and was solved.
1: It's, it's like exiting the field house after the last basketball has been shot and your team lost. It's time, it's time to leave and go home. There's, there's nothing more to see here. This game's over and we're about to be game over.
0: That is a bold statement, my friend. Thank you. (laughs) so uh, will you come back on the show after the 24th Uh,
1: there won't be a show after the 24th you won't the cooper vortex is going to cease to be there's no need for the cooper vortex after the 24th but yes i will
0: good that way you can come on and we can talk more about your specific uh, why not call it a solve instead of a suspect
1: yeah let's do another one after the 24th where you can publicly tell me that i was right how about that if how about this let's make a deal if you're convinced. And I did my job and I didn't tell you what to think. And you came to your own conclusion that I was right. And in your mind, it meets all the parameters and it's definitely solved. Will you publicly tell me that?
0: Yes. Yes, I will. Because I have, you know, many guests have been on the show with the suspect and we'll do the recording. I'm friends with a lot of them outside of the show. And they'll say, well, do you think it was Dwayne? Do you think it was James? do you think it was this guy? And I always say, I'm not sure.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, it's what the work you've done is incredible, but it just, it's not enough to push me over the edge.
1: No, not right now. I haven't given anything.
0: No, I was referring to uh, other people, but if you have, if you have the information and it convinces me, I would definitely say that. And it would be pretty cool if I could say it to your face. Yeah.
1: Well, if you're out there on the 24th, uh you can uh, you you can tell me after I pack up my parachute because I'll be out there.
0: All right, I'll change my travel plans. I'll be there the 24th.
1: I think you should. I think it's very important for you to be there. Everybody else is gonna be there.
0: All right, count me in.
1: All right, brother. Great job. Darren, good to catch up with you. Darren Schaefer, my friend. What isn't you always say, my friend, my friend Darren?
0: My good friend. My- <laughs>
1: My good friend, Darren Schaefer. And uh, yeah, watch, uh, check out my YouTube channel, Dan Grider, Probable Cause. Uh, I'm going to start doing a whole bunch of parachute jump uh, stuff on my channel in training and anticipation of going out there. I've got a whole bunch of stuff I'm going to film uh, to show you what I'm about to do out there. So be some uh, really cool footage that I'm shooting here in Georgia, getting ready to do the, the stunt jump that I'm going to do out there. So I'm jumping with a stunt man out there.
0: That's pretty cool.
1: Yeah it's
0: gonna be good yeah and we'll have a a link to your channel in the show notes and everything um if you're solving the case i definitely want to turn people on to where they're going to be able to find that so we'll stay tuned and uh i guess i'll talk to you (laughs) the 24th or the 25th be sure to check out dan's youtube channel probable cause dan grider and visit his website dangrider.com we've got links to it all in the show notes do you know who db cooper was Is your relative a suspect? Did you solve the case? Hit us up. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or email us dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Dan Greider for getting us pumped up about his upcoming documentary. Thank you to Russell Colbert, who I'm sure is very excited about Dan's documentary too. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex.